Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Diadora, the brand made famous by Bjorn Borg, currently worn by world number 23, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, world number 33, Jan Leonard Struff, and world number 63, Martina Trevisan. Use my code APPROVED, in all caps, at hollabirdsports.com to receive 15% off of all Diodora Performance Tennis Shoes. He was born and raised in Ramat Hasharon, Israel, and in 1979 reached the finals of the Orange Bowl, which springboarded him into the elite junior ranks. He carried the torch for Israeli tennis as a Davis Cupper from 1984 to 1995. He got to 60 in the world and posted wins over Jimmy Connors, Peter Korda, Brad Gilbert, Mark Filipousis, and Marcelo Rios, to name a few. In 1990, he reached the fourth round of the U.S. Open. He resides in New York. He has a boutique tennis program and leads his own rock band, and we talked about it all. Gilad Bloom is today's guest. Now, hang on. Where are you? Me? I'm in New York City right now. Whereabouts? Hell's Kitchen. So you're in the 50s on the west side. Correct. 51 between 9 and 10. Now, do you run your program in Riverdale? Is that, do I have that right? Yes. 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 Okay. Uh, Partially right, because uh, in Riverdale, I run six months of the year. And then when it gets too cold around October, we're moving indoors to another part of the Bronx, a place called New York Tennis Club indoors and do you have a, a a robust program on the contrary it's a very small what i call a boutique academy i don't even like the word academy i call it a tennis program you know and kids come through the program and uh, 99% of them end up in some form of college level very very small percentage end up on the pro tour ladies and gentlemen gentlemen you hear Former world number 61 in 1990. He got to the fourth round of the U.S. Open. He lost to Yvonne Lendl in the fourth round. Has posted wins over Jimmy Connors and Brad Gilbert and and, and a lot of very, very good players. He held the flag for Israel, which has a very interesting and strong tennis culture that we're going to talk about. That is Gilad Bloom. My man, did I get all that correct? Was that was that a good introduction? Very good. I'm very impressed. You reminded me of a few things, too. <laughs> and listen, it's great to have you on the show. I've been meaning to try to lock you in for quite some time. I see a guitar on your wall. Are you still a better tennis man than you are a musician? I would say in music, I'm a future player. Futures, you know? <laughs> futures level i'm I, if i in a few years maybe if we keep going we might i might get upgraded to the challenger level but in tennis i mean i have almost 100 wins in the major uh on the major tour so i think i'm a better tennis player than musician unfortunately <laughs> and McEnroe, what's your level of musician compared to johnny mack that's the thing about people ask me about that and the thing about music is there's no winners and there's no losers. Everybody's a winner. And McEnroe, contrary to me, my band, and I only play originals. And when I went to see Johnny Mac and his band one time, he brought his band when I was working with him at McEnroe Academy for a Christmas party. And they were playing uh, mostly covers. So it's two different genres. 
the Johnny Smythe Band is a cover band. Listen, as you know, we do a five-set format. The first set is the Off the Court Report. You are a tennis man in New York City. You are ATP alum. Do you have any significant involvement in the U.S. Open? One of my uh, uh, former students, a guy named Alexander Kovacevic, grew up on 100th Street and Broadway. And um, he was one of my prodigies uh, when he was eight. I took him up and I coached him for about eight years. And then he went down to Florida and he went on to have a really good college career. But Oh, Kovacevic is, was one of your guys. And that boy's got a real big time one-handed backhand. I love his backhand. But I always go out there, of course, you know, every year. It's the pinnacle of the, of the year for us in New York. And uh, as an ATP alumni, I get a badge so I can walk around and, uh, you know, scout the courts a little bit. I like the early rounds. I like the back courts. There's more drama there. I don't really like to walk into a stadium and sit and watch one particular match. Uh, that's a little boring. It's almost better to sit at home and watch it on the big screen listen to all the commentary, but definitely I'm going to go out there, take the train and walk around and do some networking. And I like to check out the practice courts too, as a coach. It's interesting for me to see if there's any new exercises or what are the trends, you know, you know, there's always something evolving on those practice courts. But I know all you Israeli guys, you guys like link up out there. Uh, I always see Barry Gilbert hovering around Brad Gilbert's brother and a lot of you guys that are, you know, connected to the Israeli Federation and tennis. Are you one of those guys? You guys are you always looking at the Israeli juniors and the Israelis in the, in the draw. It seems like things aren't haven't been very very significant as of late. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, we had we had a great run. Uh, it started with Shlomo Glickstein in the early '80s. And then Perkis, Shacha Perkis, and Amos Mansdorf and myself. And then after that, we had a string of players that continued that wave. Harelevi, Dudi Sela. Of course, in the late on the ladies, we had Shacha Peer and Anas Mashnova. So since I've retired in '96 and I moved to New York in 2000, I've had the pleasure of actually coaching Dudi Sela for three years in a row in the U.S. Open Juniors. The last year, he reached the semis and lost to Baghdatis. But unfortunately, in the last few years, uh, there has been a, a, you know, a drought in some good Israeli players. A dearth. That was always a real thing that the uh, Jewish community of New York and the Israelis, they come out heavy for the Open. I have some, some funny, funny stories about that when I played. I played the Open, I think, 10 or 11 years. One time I was playing... Um, in the qualifying, and I was actually playing a Jewish-American guy named James Shore. Nice guy. And we're playing in New York City. This was back in the 80s when they had those hamburger uh, uh, stands right outside the courts. And we're playing on one of the outside courts, and the whole crowd was cheering for me. And I won the first set, and everybody was going, you know, screaming and yelling. And the, the guy, he turned around to the crowd and he said, Damn it! I'm an American! This is the U.S. Open. And he was, you know, so frustrated. And I was thinking at that time, isn't it an, ir an irony that a Jewish American is complaining that an American crowd is cheering for an Israeli guy in New York City? I thought it was ironic at the time. I actually understood the irony of it. I felt bad for the guy. And But you know what? Ten years later, I was playing uh, Jimmy Connors in my home court 
in Ramat Sharon, and the crowd was rooting for Connors. And I was pissed. And I said, I'm an Israeli boy and you guys are cheering for Connors. But you know what? He was a legend. And so I understood it. Let's move into the second set. This is the On the Court Report. Uh, this is where we talk about some of the, you know, kind of hot button topics in pro tennis. First and foremost, we're hearing big rumblings that the Saudis are going to be getting involved in the sport. Have you heard any of these rumblings and what is your opinion? You know, I'm not, uh, I, I coach juniors and I'm basically, you know, on the court from 8 a.m. until 4 p.m. in my club and I watch tennis, obviously, and I read, but I'm not so involved in the politics of the business and, and you know, I get some newsletters from the ATP and the alumni. But I know that the Saudis are trying to uh, uh, get into a bunch of other sports too. They're already taking a bite of the golf tour. They're taking a bite of the uh, soccer, you know, the soccer arena with, you know, recruiting a lot of players uh, from European soccer and making a splash uh, with their league. So look, uh, it's, it's a touchy issue because, you know, I have some political uh, views uh, uh, about what's going out there, you know, with human rights and uh, uh, LGBTQ, you know, uh, the minorities and um, women's rights. And these are all things that that are important to a lot of people. However, we all know what makes the world go round. And we all know that tennis has always been a very capitalistic sport. And I would say ultra-capitalist. And in the sense that the top 5, 10, 20 guys make 10, 20 times more money than the guy who is ranked 100. It's not always the case in other sports. Other sports, I think, have been taking care, better care of their second and third tier players, such as, you know, golf, basketball, soccer. There are way more uh, work working places uh, in those sports than in tennis, where you basically have 120, 130 players making a good living and all the others are struggling. So I think if this move helps the lower tier players and if you can see 400 uh, in the world or 300 in the world start to make a better living because of that new money that's coming in, that's a plus. However, there's also some uh, communities or uh, you know parts of the society that will not see this uh, so favorably. I'm one of them, but uh, you know, I also understand the reality of it. And if I was a player in my 20s and uh, I would be offered so much money to go to a place, I don't know if I would, you know, check their constitution or their local uh, politics. Uh, and I can't judge those players who are, who are doing that. Why is uh, Israeli tennis in such a downturn? I've been asked that question a lot, mostly by Israelis. I think the main reason is the globalization of of the, the 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 sport. When I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, tennis was played by uh, way less countries. It was more English speaking countries, a little bit Spain, a little bit France, you know, Argentina. And with the big money and and the popularization of the game, you know, the big 3 helped to popularize it in in Europe. And countries just started to play tennis and started to invest more money and more uh, resources and more, uh, you know, money in, into the coaching methods. And, you know, and I think also the fall of the communist wall was major because they used to uh, specialize in Olympic sports. 
sports that would uh, uh, produce medals in the Olympics. And then after the, that wall came out, came down and people started to pursue other sports and especially female, they realized that in females uh, sports, tennis is by far the most profitable and, and way before soccer or basketball. And the top talent started going to tennis. Also in small countries started to specialize in you know producing tennis players. And that changed the tides for Israel. It became um, just one more country that's struggling. And because of the situation in Israel, which is it's a small country, 60% of the budget is going to, to, to security. So the last thing on their agenda is you know to produce tennis players. In the 80s, I'm sure you know about the Israel Tennis Center's uh, project. If you could quickly explain that. Yeah, we had we had a nonprofit organization that was sponsoring players like myself, Mansdorf, giving us free coaching from a very young age. And that kind of stopped about 10, 15 years ago. And now players are supposed to be raised by private clubs or by, you know, private sponsors or parents' money. And it's not that easy to produce a world-class player anymore as it as it was 20, 30 years ago. The competition is very hard, and Israel fell behind. Just as simple as that. The level of coaching is not great, and the pool of talent is not deep. Most of the top talent goes to soccer and basketball, and it's a chicken and the egg. When we had Glickstein and Mansdorf and Perkis and maybe myself and Dudi Sela and Shachaper, the young generation saw somebody that they could look up to and were thinking, hey, maybe tennis is an option. Now, when our top guy is 350, 400 in the world, Nobody's heard of them, and they watch the, the, the top guys, Djokovic and these guys on TV, and there's nothing to compare to, there's nobody to, to relate to, so they all go to basketball and soccer. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Now, Gilad, where does your tennis begin? Well, I'm a nine-year-old Israeli boy that I uh, was a big soccer player. Tennis was, in that at that time, was like an upper class sport. I come from a, you know, average family, not poor, not rich. I was lucky. They opened a, not not for profit tennis center, five ten minutes walk from my house, and it was free. By the time I was ten, I was uh, number one in the country, the ten and under, and then I went to the. And then by the time I was 12, I was world champion for 12. Around that time, my coach, he said, look, you know, uh, I was playing soccer and tennis at the same time. And he said, you got to choose. But he was very charismatic and he believed in me. And he said, you're going to make it to Wimbledon and you're going to be Davis Cup player and you're going to be champion of Israel. And he was right, three for three. So um, by the time I was 16, I turned pro. In those days, we used to turn pro earlier. And I played 13 years on the tour from age 16 to 29. My parents were immigrants, like most people in Israel uh, at that time. And my mom came from Tangier, uh, which is Morocco now. It used to be uh, an international city. But uh, she is uh, born and raised in Tangier um, in her mid-20s. She moved to Israel. My dad actually moved from Australia. He was an Australian Jew that uh, grew up in Melbourne. He was uh, the one that gave me the love of sports. Uh, Australian guy, he was a big hockey player. He was a professional hockey player in the 50s, uh, field hockey. How did your father end up in Australia? 
His parents were Sabres, what we call. They were born in Israel. And their parents came from Eastern Europe in the 1880s. There were pogroms in, in Eastern Europe. They were, you know, they were killing Jews way before Hitler. Pogroms, murders. Yes. And Massacres. There, there was a big massacre in the, in the 1880s, and part of the family went to Israel, and the other part went to Australia. And my, grand, my grandparents, uh, their parents went to Israel, and then my grandparents were born in Israel. They moved to Australia, and they formed a family there. And then my father was born there with his two brothers, and he grew up in Australia. But he knew that when he was finished with university, he was going to go to Israel. Uh, but his brother, his older brother, still lives in Australia. So I have a lot of family in Australia. When I used to go there, I used to stay with my uncles. My uncle in Melbourne lived like 10 minutes from the Australian Open, so it was great. Let me ask you. So did you travel internationally as a junior? I know you finaled the Orange Bowl in 1979. Who'd you lose to? I lost to a guy named Bruno Orisar. You lost to Bruno Orisar. When were you identified as a potential pro player, a good player? Well, when you reach the finals of the Orange Bowl at age 12, and then in the 14s with Israel, we reached the finals of the European Championship. Um, we lost to Sweden and I beat everybody there who was number one from five different countries. And then in the 16s, I was in the quarters of the Orange Bowl. So the path is pro. You know you're one of the, I mean, you go all over the world and you play your peers, your age group, and you winning or, or uh, reaching the final rounds in almost every tournament. So obviously, you know. Uh, you want to be there uh, in the pro level. Uh, from the first tournament that they held in Israel, which I was a ball boy, and I was ball boying guys like Tom Ocker and Ily Anastasi. Then Borg and Connors came to Israel to play exhibitions, and I was lucky enough to to hit with them and to meet them and to to ball boy those matches. And it was so fascinating to me, and I had a dream. I wanted to be one of those guys on the tour. I figured, what? You can travel around, play in front of school stadiums, and actually make a living. I couldn't think of a better life. How did you form your style? And was was there a particular win or a particular match that, you know, you were like, oh, wait, I could be good. I could be really good. Well, I've had a few moments like that, but uh, I always had the belief when I was a kid. I was lucky enough to have a really good coach that believed in me from the first day. It really gave me the confidence because I really admire that guy. And I was like, wait, if this guy believes in me. Who's the coach? Shlomo Zorov. He was also the coach of Amos Mansdorf, who grew up with me in the same, you know, we started playing tennis the same day. For our listeners, but, these are like the most famous Israeli players. There's a, there was a guy named Shlomo Glickstein who did very well. And from there, you know, you're hearing these names, Amos Mansdorf, Shahar Perkis, Gilad Bloom. In that community, these are like the most famous guys. Sorry, continue. Well, I was pretty big in Israel because of my junior career. So I had a shoe contract from uh, age 16 for three years. It was a big deal for me. I got $8,000 a year for three years. This is 1983. What shoe? Gali was a Hebrew. Gali. Uh, yeah. And that money allowed me to turn pro. Of course, my Jewish mother said, what? What about school? And I said, <laughs> relax. I'm going to finish school. I promise you. So 
I took the, the books with me and I was studying on the plane. Did you do your military? Of course, 18 to 21. Everybody has to do it in Israel. At my time, everybody had to do it. Did you lose those years of pro tennis? Well, I mean, I did basic training. And then from basic training, I flew to Florida to play the Orange Bowl 18s because I was still a junior. And they gave you, I was on the Davis Cup team and I was playing Olympic games while I was in the Army. So they basically give you a special exempt from being in the combat zone. And you do a basic training like, like everybody else. And then they give you an office job. And I would train before, then go to the Army from 8 to 1, and then go back to practice. So they were really helping me out. But still, it was kind of, uh, uh, it was holding me back for a little bit. Did you ever meet, like, uh, Menachem Begin? Did you ever meet Golden Meir, any of those heads um, of state of Israel? I met uh, Itzhak Herzog, uh, Chaim Herzog, the president, who is the father of the current president. And I met Itzhak Rabin uh, many times. Wow, Itzhak Rabin. Rabin. Rabin was a, a big tennis fan. Really? And he used to come, yes, he used to come and play at the club where I was playing. His wife, Leah, was also a, a big-time player. I mean, not a great player, but very uh, regular into it. Uh, into it. And Rabin used to come and watch us play in the tournament in Tel Aviv and in Davis Cup, He would, he, especially when he was not prime minister. When he was prime minister, he was too busy. But when he was in the opposition and he had some more time, he, used to, he would never miss a game. Um, but to come back to your question, when I was 16... I was, uh, you know, I turned pro and I had to start somewhere, right? And I looked at the calendar and I saw that there was a, a, a satellite circuit in Hawaii. And I said to myself, why not? What's the difference where you play? Let's go to Hawaii. And the first tournament was in Honolulu in, in the army base, Pearl, Pearl Harbor. I was like, what? I, I know this place from World War II, but I didn't know they played tennis there. And I walked into that place, and the qualifying was 256 people. So you had to win five rounds of huh. qualifying just to get to the main draw. Come on. And I was 16 years old. In the first couple of weeks, I lost second round or third round. You couldn't see the end of it. You're like, you have to win five rounds just to be in the main draw. And in the third, in the third week, I put together five wins. Third, fourth, and fifth win were all seven, six, and the third. So I won seven, six, and the third, seven, six, and the third Come in one on. day. And the next day, I won again seven, six, and the third. And I had no coach, no parent. And I'm playing guys that were 19, 20, 25, you know, much older, stronger than me. And I realized that in crunch time, those guys were crumbling because they're looking at this kid and they're seeing this 16 year old feisty kid who never gives up because that's what the coach taught me to do. They're, co they're choking because they're afraid to lose to this young kid. And I have nothing to lose because I'm 16 and I still have my life ahead of me. I'm just, this is my first tournament as a pro. And, and I got back to the room after that seven, six, that third, seven, six and the third. And I said to myself, I'm going to be a player because those guys, I'm young and these guys are older and they're all getting so tight. And in the big points, I was thriving and I, I realized I have it, and that gave me a lot of confidence, that tournament, that one tournament, and then I made it to the main draw, and guess what? I played the first seed. He was ranked 130 in the world. Who was it? Peter Rennert. 
Wow, Peter Rennert, friend of the show. He's uh, now he's a doctor for psychology. And he was Beckenroth's best friend at the time from Long Island. He was like 30 in the world at one point, and then his ranking dropped a little bit. So he came down to play the satellites to pick up some easy points. And I'm qualifying. I'm finally in the main draw, and I'm, I'm ranked 1,200. Okay, I have one ATP point at that point. And I'm walking to the court, and I, my coach said, hey, anybody you play, you, you just go out there like you're going to win. So I go there, and I'm playing, and I'm up, and I'm winning 6-3. And then I'm up 2-love two, two in the second set. And then Peter walks to the net, and he goes, your match. He retired for some reason. I don't remember the reason, but I was like ecstatic because I'm 16 years old and now I'm in the second round. And then I played a guy who was 250 in the world and I beat him. Then I got my ass kicked in the quarterfinals after having won seven matches in a row. <laughs> okay. It's like winning a grand slam. What was it like to be a Jew on tour? What was it like to be an Israeli specifically on tour at that time? It was interesting because, uh, as you know, probably, Jews take care of each other. It's, it's a thing. So every city or country that I went to, somebody from the Jewish community would show up in the matches. And most of the time, you know, these, they're, they would come up to me and introduce themselves. And sometimes they would invite me for Shabbat dinner. Sometimes they'll try to hook me up with their daughter. <laughs> because there's always a shortage of Jewish males, you know? <laughs> like in Argentina, they were, they as soon as we came in for Davis Cup, they had like two very attractive Jewish girls take us around. And then somebody said to me, hey, listen, there's a shortage of Jewish men. So, you know, <laughs> but uh, in fact, the other, the other uh, players, you know, from the normal countries, from uh, they were always jealous of us because they always said, Wow, the Jewish connections. Everywhere you go, you're hooked up. You always, there's somebody coming to watch you, somebody taking care of you, somebody taking you out, somebody hooking you up with another practice court here and there, you know, and and and, and many of the tournaments, we would come over and over again, like Cincinnati or New York, and, and people would come and, and you form relationships. And some of those relationships are, I'm still, you know, I still keep. 1990, you did your best. You got to 61. Who were you in 1990? Well, I had, uh, that's the year that I'm most proud of, and I wish I could have more years like that. Um, it, that was the, the culmination of a few years where I started in 86, 87. I got to 102 in the world already, and then I had a slump in 88. And... You know, the second year syndrome, people start to know you, they respect you, they find your flaws. And then um, I hired a new fitness coach. I wasn't strong enough to sustain long matches and to recover from long matches. It was August 88. He said to me, January 1990, you're going to be in the top 100. And that's what happened. That year, I managed to really put together my A game almost on a weekly basis and a couple of semifinals. And then, you know, on the, on the major four tournaments, I won round in all four, third round, uh, Australian fourth round U S and 90 was definitely the most consistent year. Could you have done better 
Definitely. Um, I regret not making the top 50. I think I was worth top 50. I had a lot of wins over top 50 guys, top 30 guys, and top 20 guys, top 15 guys. And the top 10 guys were a little bit too heavy for me, but um, I could definitely be in the top 50. And one of my regrets is that. The other one is that I couldn't last longer in the higher level. Um, I made a few mistakes. And, and then, of course, there's reality. And it, it is what it is when you look back. The, the stats... You know, they tell the story. And what do you mean you made a few anything. mistakes in the year when I was uh, when I was one oh two, I was in a good position, and then I kept playing because I was in the army, and it was either being the army or playing. So I was playing thirty, thirty five weeks a year, and I was kind of burning myself out. Uh, I could have at that stage maybe take a step back and go back to the drawing board work on my fitness, work on um, adding, uh, you know, weapons to, you know, maybe making my form a little heavier. And then I could have prevented that slump. And then when I made that comeback and I got to 60 in the world, I had the same coach that, co that coached me from age nine, which was Shlomo Zorif. And I got advice from some people uh, that I was talked into um, trying a new coach somebody that was more, uh, that had a, a playing career and and that was bad advice that I should have not listened to. Um, you know, part of it, the Federation, uh, they told me, listen, you know, I had a good deal with them up to that point where they were paying for my, my, uh, my coach's expenses and I was paying them a percentage. When I got to 60, they said, listen, you're already making a lot of money. If you want to hire this coach, you have to hire him privately. That would mean I would have to pay the coach like twice more than I was paying. Uh, and it was a financial decision that I uh, I would have made a different one uh, today. I think, you know, if you have something good, you shouldn't mess with it. And you mentioned Brad Gilbert. He had the same coach for his, uh, his whole career. Joran Borg had the same coach his whole career. Edberg had the same coach his whole career. But uh, most players, they change coaches and sometimes it works. In my case, that's one of my big regrets. But all in all, when you look back, and, uh, you know, I always tell my students, you know, I was going for number one, and I ended up 61, so I missed it by 60 spots. Does that make me a loser? No, because, uh, you know, I tried my best, and I uh, was on the tour for 13 years. I played all the big tournaments. I had some great wins. I had good, you know, I had some success in Davis Cup. And I experienced uh, the the dream, you know. I lived the dream. Obviously, you know, everybody wants to win Wimbledon, but then when you uh, grow up and you realize the odds, you're happy just to be in it. And then once you're in it, you're happy to win a few rounds. And very few of us get to be on that uh, final stages. And uh, you know, you sounds like you love being a pro player. Well, yeah. I mean, I I can't think of anything. Better to do when you're young, in your 20s, and, you know, single. I couldn't think of uh, a better life. Maybe a rock star, <laughs> you know, but. Your best moment on tour? Um, <clears throat> the best moment on, on the ATP tour was obviously the fourth round of the U.S. Open, uh, where you, you get to uh, play on center court against Lendl, who was the finalist of that tournament for eight years. And, uh, you know, walk around uh, into that stage to feel a part of the second week of a major. And, and that was definitely the top 
of the uh, pro achievement, but I also had three finals on the tour. Uh, one of them was in Tel Aviv, my hometown against Jimmy Connors, which I lost in three sets. Uh, and that was a special moment to play in front of your home crowd on ATP finals against one of your childhood heroes. So I would have to put those two moments at the top. And then the Davis Cup, obviously there was this Davis Cup match against Switzerland where we, we you know, was a dream scenario for me. The day of Yom Kippur, 6,000 screaming people in a stadium against uh, a guy ranked 100 spots oh, uh, higher than me. It was Jakob Lasik. Correct. We were uh, we were the underdogs. Switzerland reached the finals the previous year with Marc Rosset, the gold medalist in the Olympics, and Jakob Lasik, who was uh, four in the world at his peak. And they lost in the finals the year before. So this is... Uh, the world group qualifying and we're playing them at home and uh, they're both top 10. Uh, I mean, Rosette was top 10 elastic at that time was 40 in the world. I was ranked 140, and uh, I lost to, to Rosette in five sets in the first day. Great match. Amos beat both of them. We lost the doubles and now it's two, two and I'm playing uh, elastic and, the year before, in the quarters of the Kremlin Cup in Moscow, he beat me 6-2, 6-1. And my, my captain, Glickstein, said, you know, maybe we should surprise him because when we played in, in Moscow, he was attacking my serve. He was coming in a lot. The game plan was make a lot of first serves, maybe take a little off and make 80% first serves in, come in behind a lot of serves, and on his serve, come in behind his second serve. So that worked really well. I didn't lose my serve the entire match. And I won 6-4, 6-1, 6-3. Not losing my serve for three sets was a huge achievement for me. And beating a guy like that in such a huge match in straight sets, uh, uh, like, you know, without even giving the crowd any drama, was by far the, the biggest, uh, most exciting match of my life as far as you know, when you play for Davis Cup, it's they don't even say game bloom, they say game Israel. So you're you're not even yourself, you're you're a country when you play advantage Israel. And then of course the uh, the exposure and the meaning is much 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 higher and much stronger and then small country like Israel after that match for about a week. I didn't have to pay for any any meals and um <laughs> uh, it was it was by far the most emotional match of my career. But there, there were a lot of sporadic moments where you play, you know, you mentioned Brad Gilbert. He beat me three times. Uh, uh, but the fourth time we played was on grass. And I played the single best performance of my entire career where I beat him 6-2, six, 6-love. Six, that led to the, the, the funniest moment in the locker room where after that match, the next week was Wimbledon. We're in the locker room in Wimbledon. And Lendl, who didn't like Brad Gilbert a lot and was always teasing him, it was a friendly kind of rivalry. And we were in the locker room and we were sitting, you know, the Jewish corner, Amos and Brad Gilbert and myself and Jim Grab. And Lendl came in and he said to Brad, Hey, Brad, I hear you're hitting the ball really well. You got two games off of Bloom on grass. <laughs> And I, and, and I don't think Brad spoke to me for a year after that. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10-ball scramble. We go fast. I say it, you say what comes in your mind. You ready? Okay. Your favorite racket. 
at Prestige Pro. With uh, the Lock Gromit. The Lock Gromit. The Lock Gromit, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, natural yeah, yeah. gut, fairway leather grip. What size grip? Four and a half. Yeah, you have big hands, man. You have like hands like Frisbees. You, I, it's interesting that you remember this. Let me take a picture I, of that for my... Bro, you got like gigantic freaking hands. When I but but here's the interesting thing. Jesus I'm very sh- I'm very short. I, I know. I'm only I'm only one meter seventy one, or which is five. Bro, listeners, the guy just put his hand up on the screen. His hand is like is is gigantic, man. I was playing with a four and a half grip already at age twelve. Jesus, big entourage or lean and mean? I mean, look today, everybody's got an entourage. When I was traveling, I mean, the first couple of years of my career, I didn't even have a coach because I couldn't afford it. And when I could afford it, I always liked one coach. Sometimes I would take take the fitness the, the fitness trainer, and sometimes I would take the massage person, and we do meditation and massage and yoga. But uh, you know, for me, one person is enough. I, I don't like a big entourage. You know. Did you save your credentials? You know, somewhere there, there are a bunch of credentials out there in 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 my storage room in Israel, in my in in my wife's apartment, uh, but uh, I don't take a look at it. But I think it's there. Where'd you do with your trophies? They were in my parents' house, and when my parents uh, moved out of their house because they were too old, I had to take it and put it in a in a duffel bag, and it's somewhere in an apartment. The couple of nice ones I kept in there here in New York, in my New York apartment. Your favorite band? Led Zeppelin. I played tennis with Robert Plant and was a guest of Led Zeppelin. How many guitars do you own? Seven. What's your favorite guitar? Uh, Fender Strat. Fender Stratocat. Now, what was the most cavalier thing you did with prize money right out of the office? <laughs> It's interesting. Uh, one time I lost a very bad match in Indian Wells and one of my friends from Israel who was uh, um, playing for a University of Nevada, he came to watch me and he, after I lost the match, he said, let's go to Vegas and have fun for three days. Um, I had a few days before the tournament, so I went to the tournament and I took the prize money out in cash. And we drove through the desert to Vegas and checked into a hotel. And two days later, I was out of money. <laughs> but if on a positive note, when I first reached my first finals of ATP against Connors in my hometown, in my home tournament, I had like an eleven or twelve thousand uh, dollar prize money, and it was the biggest prize money I ever made at that time. And I contributed three thousand of it back to the Israel Tennis Center as a donation. The U.S. Open. That's where I want my ashes uh, when I die and I get, you know, I burn my body. I want my ashes to be spread 50% over the U.S. Open and 50% over my hometown club. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis and make a change in the sport, any kind of change with no aggravation, swing of the racket, what would it be? I would bring back small rackets. I would, I would disallow anything wide body and anything over uh, the original head. Maybe, you know, 93, whatever, 93 or 92 inches. And I think that would bring back 
the strategy that we lost and the variety of game that we lost. It used to be a game of finesse, a game of strategy, a game of, uh, of touch and a game of variety. There were more there were more than one way one way one ways to, to win a match. And now it seems like there's only two or three ways to win a point. You run around, you crack forehands, you open up the court, you hit a big serve and you hit a winner and, or you just out rally the person. There's no slice, there's no serve and volley. That's why I like watching Alcaraz. He's bringing back the 80s a little bit, I think. He's playing you know really all around the all-round game. so I'm enjoying watching that kid. Hey, man, you know, Nicholas Pereira told me you were going to be a great guy to talk with. I imagine we're going to see you at the U.S. Open over the next couple of weeks. Uh, yes, yes. I'm just waiting for the right day that I have a little time uh, off my, my own uh, teaching so I can uh, go out there and watch some matches. And the name of your band is the Gilad Bloom Band. Is that right? Correct. Where and when do you guys play? How can someone find your band? There's a couple of bars in Harlem that have become our home. They invite us once a week to play. And incidentally, I'm also publishing a Hebrew album, an album in Hebrew uh, coming out in the next couple of weeks. So if you follow me on Facebook or if you go on my website, uh, you'll be able to get all the information about my, my musical career. And there's nothing like live music. It's just like sports. If you go out there and you... You can see the, the the actual action on the on the court or on the field and see the sweat of the players and see the effort firsthand. There's no substitute for that. Hey man, thank you very much. See you uh, at the open. And it, it's this been was a, a pleasure. pleasure. Anytime. Keep in All right, touch brother. whenever you're in town. Let me know. Gilad Bloom, you are released. Thank you very much, Craig. Huge thank you to Gilad Bloom, and thank you to Deodora. Use my code APPROVED in all caps at hollabirdsports.com for 15% off of all Deodora performance tennis shoes. Megan Fernandez edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.